morning, everybody. Hey. So pleased to have you with us. For those that don't know me, my name is Peter Botros, and it's just an absolute honor and privilege to have you. Whether you uh, come to church often, uh, whether this is, uh, you know, uh, one of your times where you're visiting with us, or you, you're together with friends, or, or whether you're just coming for this particular series, we are so, so glad uh, that you're here. Uh, we, we're, t- we're taking some weeks aside uh, to focus on relationships. And we titled this series Relationship Mechanics because you and I know that relationships are like cars. It seems like you can't live with them and you can't live without them. At times, they can be so exciting and and when they're doing, when they're operating according to the pattern that you want them to operate, they are so, so fulfilling. Uh, But at times when they're not operating so well, uh, they can be exhausting and so hard uh, to live through. And uh, we're taking a few weeks to say, how do relationships actually work? Do they have any element of mechanics? Do they have predictability? Or you just enter a relationship hoping for the best, and at times they work really, really well, and other times because of interruption, because of things that you unexpectedly experience, we end up exhausting ourselves in our relationships and wonder why on earth uh, did we get into uh, those relationships. And, and last week, we, we, we talked about engines, and we talked about our relational patterns. Believe it or not, every single one of us is wired with a relational pattern that has been based on our experiences, on our temperament, on our bringing, on the way our brain functions. And as a result of that pattern, we behave in a particular way. And today, I want to uh, look at... Uh, at relationships from the perspective of fuel. Because you and I know that when there are some relationships come in our mind, we, 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 all of a the sudden there's some great feelings that are attached to those relationships. You notice yourself when you get a, an SMS from somebody that you really love, all of a sudden something inside you lights up. Uh, you call those relationships full tank relationships. The tank is full. It almost feels like you receive or it appears that you receive more than you give. The relationship is is, is satisfying, is intrinsically fulfilling. But also you and I know some relationships where we enter into an environment or we relate with some people and it feels like it's a conditional relationship. It's give and take, and it's, sometimes it's hard to receive because it's, it's not necessarily adequate to what the investment that we're giving. And at times, this relationship uh, rubs us the wrong way, and, and, and we feel like we're at a, a, a stage where it could tip this way or this way. But you and I have been in relationships where it's empty. Relationships where you give and give and give and you've got nothing in return. Relationships that at their best you feel ignored and and you feel unsatisfied and and you feel hard done by and at worst there might be some sense of control, manipulation or abuse. And we all go through life wondering what on earth makes our relationship thrive and it feel like we've got a, a, a tank full of fuel and And other relationships seem to be so draining and empty and difficult. And believe it or not, there actually is some 
uh, rational understanding of relationships, which they call psycho-relationship bondings, as that help us understand the mechanics of how relationships work. Relationships are not hypo- uh, hypothetical, they're not haphazard, they, they, it's, it's not spasmodic, they actually have parts of our brain. There's a center in our brain uh, that uh, regulates our emotions and our relationships and our interactions. And psychologists and psychiatrists tell us uh, that the reality is, let's go one before Jason, uh, that uh, secure relationships, when there is secure attachments, when there is the, 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 the relationship tank is filled with fuel, it's usually we feel those three things. You and I feel like we're genuine, genuinely glad to be with others, and we sense that others are genuinely glad to be with us, but this is critical, that we are glad to be together in the midst of our negative emotions. Secure attachments. Uh, the, the engine, when it functions at its best, the tank, when it's full of fuel, you find that they describe those relationships where we're genuinely glad to be with somebody else, where others are genuinely glad to be with us. And when we're together, genuinely glad to be with one another despite of negative emotions. Do you know that we all experience six negative emotions? including fear and despair and, and disgust and sadness and hopeless, hopeless despair. We, we, we have significant relation, relational problems when we're experiencing those emotions. And, and when we know that uh, the, the times that we know that our tank is full is a time where we can endure those emotions, where we can uh, navigate those emotions in the presence of others around us and they don't judge us, they don't reject us, and we don't feel like we don't measure up at a time when those emotions are endured in our lives. So what actually brings this gladness? What actually motivates this fuel? Uh, what, what, what is the reasons that at times we feel glad and other times we don't feel glad? And that's where I want to spend a couple of minutes, and I don't Intended to be difficult or, 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 or irritating, but just bear with me a couple of minutes as I explain the fuel injection system in your brain. You know, every motor, when it receives the fuel, it provides or it turns it into motion. That's relational motion. The same thing happens in your brain. Your brain and my brain, when they began to do some brain imagery, they discovered, believe it or not, that your brain and my brain is fueled by joy. It's absolutely freaky. This is not Christian scholars. Uh, This is just scholars who have scanned the brain. And they discovered that there is a center in your brain that functions based on joy. Most of you understand that we have two brains, uh, two sides to the brain. We have what we call the left brain and we call the right brain. The left brain is what functions based on uh, conscious, uh, conscious thought. Uh, it's, uh, it wants to, to, to relate to information and explanations. And also our, our left brain is the one that, uh, uh, that makes choices, if you like. It's a verbal brain uh, that makes choices. It functions, believe it or not, 
Five cycles per second, five cycles per second. See, it goes around and, and makes uh, uh, images and, and the like in five cycles per second. Then we've got the left side, uh, the right side of the brain. The right side of the brain is the center of your emotions. It's the center of your relationships. In fact, it's the center of your identity. And the right side of the brain develops. You, you are not born with, with, with that particular uh, developed part. It gets developed over 18 months. It is fully developed before a child has mastered 15 words of vocabulary. That's pretty freaky. That part actually makes 35% of the adult mind or the adult brain, and it functions in a non-verbal way. It, it's based on images and pictures. It, it, it realizes its potential based on the faces that the child sees when they're very young, based on the touch and the warmth, the temperature, and based on the tone of voice. It's not functioning based on words. It, des it desires ex experiences rather than explanations. And believe it or not, it, it functions on six cycles per second. That means it's one cycle ahead of your conscious thought. Let me give you an example. Have you ever reacted to somebody that said something to you? And you went off. And after you finished, you thought, what the heck just happened? I have no idea what happened. I was so frustrated. It was almost like we call out-of-body experience. It's like, what the heck happened there? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And the reality is your, your right brain uh, created that response so quickly that your conscious thought wasn't even there to recognize it. It's way ahead of it. It's a cycle ahead of it. And believe it or not, we, we, we make choices sometimes, we make responses sometimes, and we go back to our left-hand side, to the left brain, and we say, why did I do that? What, what, why did I do that? Come up with some explanation, come up with, with some justification for me to have done that. And you need to be aware of this. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you need to be aware of how your machine works. I would like to say something here. And some of you are going to like it, some of you may not come again. And that's quite okay with me. We have super-spiritualized everything. We have super-spiritualized everything. Some of you sitting here and say, Peter, this is not a psychology lesson, bro. Just move on. We want Bible. We want meat. Yes. The same people that are asking for meat and asking for Bible can't go home and be kind to their wives and their husbands and their children and their neighbors and can't give a hoot about other people in their world. We have become such cognitive people that we think it's okay to know more and okay to live little. But I want to tell you something, friend. Jesus if you're a Christian, if you're not Christian, you don't have to worry for a few minutes. But if you're a Christian, you need to understand that God created us to be loving human beings. In fact, when he wanted to categorize and, 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 and say what distinguishes his people from others, he said, by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And you need to know how your brain functions in order to love other people rather than being the type of person that is a downer to everybody, that criticizes everybody, that, that, that gives negative environment to everybody. So I know Jesus, yes, but the Jesus you know is not changing the Jesus that we know in you. When we see you, we don't see Jesus. When we see you, we see somebody that knows so much and lives so little. That's why the non-Christians who may be even here today would agree with me that we've become such a judgmental group of people that nobody wants our faith. That's why there's 7% of Australians go to churches. Surely the type of life that we live hasn't attracted the masses. And you can tell me it's their fault, they're idiotics, they don't understand, they're missing out. But people, we need to present Jesus the way he has decided to be presented. And that's through relational, interactional, loving ways. So, now if you're non-Christian, listen up to me. We need to come up with an understanding of how your brain functions and responds in order to have some sort of an understanding of how you can change it. And it does change, thankfully. There are four different stations, if you like, in your right-hand side of the brain that causes you to respond in a particular way. Those four stations are like an elevator. But it's so fast that those four stages that I'm going to tell you about actually operate within one, 160 milliseconds. 160 milliseconds, all those decisions are made. They like that. Yeah? And the first, every time you relate to somebody, you see somebody, there is a situation in front of you, the first thing that it goes by, the thought is, before even the conscious thought, there is an attachment center. As soon as you see somebody, as soon as you see a text message, as soon as you see a name pop on the screen, without you reading it, without you knowing anything, there is the first center of attachment. Am I glad to be with that person? Are they glad to be with me? That's the first thing that pops into your mind. Am I glad to be with that person? Are they glad to be with me? That's the attachment, particular attachment center. And, and in the last week of our series, we'll talk about the different attachment theories. But that's the first one, the attachment center. Then if it passes by, then we go to what we call the assessment center, which is the amygdala in the back of, of your brain there. And that's where it creates the fight or flight response. Actually, some people now say fight, flight, or freeze. So you see somebody, you decide whether you're glad to be with them or not, and then your amygdala, if it scans some sort of threats, the amygdala doesn't work based on what's happening now, based on the library in your memories of what happened in the past. If somebody looks like this person or somebody relates like this person, you immediately decide whether it's fight, flight, or freeze. If it passes by that center, then it comes to the attunement center. Have you ever looked at somebody in the face and said, I know what they're thinking? Or I know how they're feeling? And the people that misread others are always socially awkward. They don't know whether the person wants to be with them, whether the person thinks positively or thinks negatively. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing, but we have what we call mind sight. You read how the person is reacting before they even utter a word. And if it passes by that, we make decisions in what we call the prefrontal cortex, and that is called the identity center. And this is a big deal. Why is it a big deal for you and I? Because we say this to people. 
you need to choose to be glad with others. That's the God thing. You need to choose when you see somebody that you choose to be glad to be with them. Let me tell you something that's going to bust your bubble. A choice is too late. Because your right-hand side of the brain functions before a choice. That's freaky. The way you relate to people, friends, listen to this. The way you relate to people is not based on your choice. It's based on your identity. And that's big, big, big deal. You cannot force yourself, so to speak, to relate well to people. Yet your identity takes over and decides how you relate to people. Identity is a big deal. And there's three questions that form your identity. First, who am I? Secondly, who are my people? And thirdly, how is it like us to act under these conditions. They become procedural, almost automated responses in your brain. This is who I am. This is who my people are. And this is how we react, how we respond under stress or under these conditions or under this situation. Have you noticed that sometimes we feel so guilty that we are unable to change our choices in the heat of the moment, you know why? Because your identity center is taken over. You are really who you are rather than what you choose to be. It's a uh, renovated center of who you are. It's, it, 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 there is times where you can't have that working. You are who you are. You function based on how you see yourself. And I know that many of you have experienced that. That there are times where you respond in a particular way and not just in, a stint, in, in the short term, but even in the long term, based on how you see yourself. I recall being a, at, at the church that, that I was at, uh, first my first ministry opportunity as a, as a full-time pastor. I was so fired up about the mission. I was so fired up about reaching our community. I was so fired up about what God can do through us. I was so fired up about reaching the goals that we've set together. But because of my relational pattern, because of my engine, I had created within my own mind an identity of me being a task-oriented human being. So I wanted to use people to accomplish the task. The goal, the mission was number one. And if people were not collaborating, means they were stopping the task from actually being done. So people were problems that needed to be fixed. And slowly, slowly, I wanted to avoid people if there wasn't a task. I, I wanted to isolate my people because I had people around me all the time. I wanted to isolate my people because I, I, I just didn't feel like I had much to give. I didn't, I didn't realize that there was joy in the relationship. All my joy was in the task. And I prayed so hard. I, I said, God, I love the mission. I love what you're trying to do. I want to be in an environment where I don't have to do this day-to-day, everyday type of relationships with people. I love people from afar, if you know what I mean. But then, as I moved to another season of my life, I, I was saying to God, I need another job that, that doesn't have this many people involved all the time. 
I didn't want that intimate thing all the time. And God put me in another job. And that job was more intimate with people than I've ever had before. And it was in the secular world. And I had to be around 30, 40 people that I had to manage, that they were all around Victoria. And when I first went there, in my first handover day, I remember I got the job on Monday. On Wednesday, I had the handover from the manager before me and he said to me, listen, mate, there have been four managers in three years that left this place because it's really negative. Thank you, Lord. That's exactly what I needed. Imagine how empty I felt. And I don't know about you. That there are reasons why in some of your relationships you feel empty. And I'm not talking about all relationships. If you've got a relationship that's abusive, you need to talk to a counselor. You do not have to endure abuse. Absolutely not. There are some relationships that you need to talk to a professional. Do not take what I'm sharing today and put it under all the banners of relationships. I am only sharing with you the template rather than specific contextual stuff for you. You need to talk to somebody. But sometimes our relationships that meant to be the best can end up to be empty. You're going out on a night with a date and, and you, you think it's going to be an absolute awesome time and all of a sudden you just want to run for your life. You want to go to McDonald's out of all places, you know. People interrupted, situations interrupted, discussions that don't go your way and you're so drained at the end of the experience. It's not what you hoped it, it would be. And you know what? This is not because we're crazy. This is because all of humanity, throughout all ages, have experienced much the same things. Even the best of people have experienced ridiculously fulfilling relationships. And along the way, things happened that created to be very empty relationships and very draining. Who is better than Paul? The Apostle Paul, the guy who changed the face of Christianity in the Gentile world, in a world that is not Jewish. He was one of the most incredible people who experienced the most transformational experience of God. And uh, after a few years, he was uh, picked up by a guy called Barnabas. And he encouraged him and brought him to Antioch, like a center of, a, of, of an area where the church was so far up. There was almost like a revival going on, and they preached and ministered together. But God had so much more in, in plan for, planned for Barnabas and Saul, and Saul, who is, we know as Paul. And they, the church recognized God's calling upon their life, and they sent them in what Christians call the first missionary trip. They, they were sent on a trip to reach out to people that don't know God in any way or shape or form. And they went there and had such an incredible time. They have had with them a guy called Mark, and, uh, and he assisted them for a little period of time, but the going was pretty tough. Even though Paul and Barnabas were excited by the results, uh, Mark, the young fella uh, who wrote the gospel of Mark, by the way, he was so irritated, he deserted them and left left the trip, the journey. So they went back to Antioch and they reported how awesome God has been doing the stuff in their lives. And, and after a while they said, hey, this has been so good, let's go back. Let's go back and enjoy the, the awesome joy that comes from us being together and accomplishing something for God. And that bring, uh, brings us to a narrative in the book of Acts, which is the story, if you like, of the early church and interaction 
between Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. And it says this, Sometime later, after their first journey, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. That's a good thing. They want to be relational. They want to be together and they want to check on other people. Barnabas wanted to take John, who also called Mark, with them. That's the assistant that went with them on the first journey. But Paul did not think it wise to take Mark because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. What actually happened is Paul is saying, listen, mate, we had, we had given Mark, uh, John Mark a, a chance to be with us and we'll be relational and we're glad to have him with us. But the reality is we can't be so glad to have him with us again because he wasn't glad to stay with us. We are mirroring. And you know that in your brain there is a mirror neuron that what you see sometimes you mirror, what you experience sometimes you mirror. That's why they say hurting people hurt. So here uh, Mark has deserted them and Paul is saying, well, we're going to mirror that. We, we, we will desert him here as well. We're not going to do relationship with him because he didn't want to do relationship with us. He wasn't glad to be with us. We're not glad to be with him. And therefore, Paul was saying, together, we're not going to be with one another together when there is negative emotions, where despair or fear or disgust or disappointment or whatever it might be. But Barnabas said, no, we want to take the guy with us again. They had such and, and look, if you think the early church was like the most amazing group of people who, sp who spoke to each other in songs and psalms and, and danced with, you know, all the way to, 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 to each other's houses and they were so good to each other, you've got it wrong, brother. You've got it wrong, sister. It is not true. They were human like you and I. They stuffed up like you and I. They were real people like you and I. And don't I love God who describes for us the reality of these people, not just the PR of these people. Because we Christians, and if you're a non-Christian, you agree with this, that we Christians love to put a mask that we've got it all under control. You don't. And we all know it. Because we've got a sin, a virus in our lives, and none of us has got it under control. And look at what God says about them. They had such a sharp disagreement. They had such a sharp... They, they had a fight, friends. They, 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 they weren't give, uh, throwing uh, lollies at each other. They had a sharp disagreement. They weren't saying, hey, brother, would you please pray for me? Because I feel a little bit distressed disgusted by you no they had a sharp disagreement they had a sharp disagreement to the extent that they parted company they said stuff this i'm not going with you you go on your own brother i am not glad to be with you and we're not glad together to go through negative emotions that's real that's natural that's human like but look what happened barnabas took mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul, a church Silas, and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. What happened? Why did the relationship break up? Why did the fuel of joy of being together, glad to be together, which motivates our nervous system, how come that fuel ran out? Simply because of the criteria. 
they saw glad to be with you from two different perspectives. The, the first perspective, Paul was asking, what would Mark, how useful will Mark be for the work? And Barnabas was asking, how useful could we be for Mark? Paul was looking at the task. And he was asking how useful could Mark be for the task. Not very useful. He stuffed us up. He was unreliable. He left us. He deserted us. So in, in, concerning the task, concerning the work, concerning what we're trying to achieve, he's no good. We're not glad to be with him. But Barnabas, the man of relationship, he said, how useful can we be for Mark? How useful can we be for this young man? How useful can our relationship be to him? You know why? Because of their identity. Barnabas is not his real name. This is a nickname that was given to him by the church. You know what Barnabas means? Does anybody know? Son of encouragement. Thank you. This was his nickname. This was who he is, the son of encouragement. This is not the name that his parents gave him. This is the name he lived out. This is the identity he exhibited. This is who he was when people encountered him. He was the son of encouragement. This was his lived out identity from which all responses come out. He's not consciously choosing to be with Mark. He comes out of his identity saying, I'm not leaving him go. He's stuffed up, but he's a relationship and he's more important than the project. And how do you see yourself? Because how you see yourself, who you think you are and who your people are will determine how you behave. What is it like to be on the other side of me is a quote I heard 2012 and it's haunted me since. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Why, what is it like to be to relate to me? What is my, am I that son of encouragement or am I the task focused individual? Am I Looking after the relationship or am I looking after the goal? Friends, you and I are confronted with relationships every day. And the way you respond to relationships is based on your identity, not merely your choices. Your identity will overwhelm your choices. You can't basically, you can't pretend to be somebody else when the going gets tough. You can pretend to be somebody else when everything is going okay. But your identity will trump your choices every day when the going gets tough. And your responses will reveal who do you see yourself to be and who your group are and what is it like you, how is it like you to behave under stress, how is it like you to behave in this situation or under those conditions. So the reality, friends, we need to see ourselves differently if we're going to give our families, our friends, our churches the best version of who we really are. And it's a gradual process because we all have got that engine now and it's being fueled by either fear or joy and we need slowly to train our right hand side, our right side of the brain to see ourselves differently.
So if you're a non-Christian, we're so blessed to have you with us. And I, and I want to say to you, you need to identify who you are and who you want to be. You want to see yourself in the eyes of another and say, what is it like me? What is it like to be on the other side of me? You want to you wanna figure out in advance who you want to be, not respond out of choices or out of obligations or out of a manual book or out of what's expected uh, for you to behave. But for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, you have no option. You're not who you think you are. The letter of Paul to a church called Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it says this. But we all behold as in a mirror. We're looking at a mirror. We behold the glory of the Lord. We behold the very character of Jesus in a mirror. Are being transformed. It starts with the identity. It starts to see something. Uh, and then you become transformed into the same image of what you see. From glory to glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord will change your brain. If you collaborate with Him. If you calibrate with His Word. If you allow His Word to reprogram your mind. But ultimately what you need to see is the picture of who you are. It says that we see in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We see the character of Jesus who is the glory of the Lord. We see who Jesus is in a mirror and therefore we become like Jesus. We act like Jesus. It is like you to act like Jesus. It's your group who acts like Jesus because we are Jesus-like disciples. It's like us to act like Jesus. It's like us to respond like Jesus. And you may not get it like that because we are messed up. But God will heal us gradually will bring us to our knees in order to lift us on our feet and allow us to behave and act and respond from the center of our identity to behave like Jesus. You see, if you look in a mirror, which is the Word of God, what do you see? You see your face. You see who you are. Because a mirror reveals the person looking at it, not through it. If you're looking at a window, you see straight through the window and you see Jesus. But when it tells us it's like a mirror, it means that you and I from the inside have the very image of Jesus. You are Jesus. You are a very icon of Jesus. You've got the DNA of God inside of you. You have the capacity to behave and respond, but you can only do that. You know, it's not what would Jesus do. It's who Jesus is first that will determine what you will do. It's not choices before identity, it's identity, who you see yourself. If only we see ourselves, if only we brainwash our mind with what God sees us to be, if only we would look in the Word of God and see, that's who I am, that's who my people are, that's how I'm meant to act, we wouldn't behave the way we behave, we wouldn't respond the way we respond. Gradually, that which is Jesus would be exhibited in our behavior, in our responses, in our emotions. Friends, you're not mature because you know more. You're not mature because you're well networked. You're not mature because you come to church. You're not mature because you invest in the church. You're not mature because other people think that you're God gifts to us. You're mature when you reflect the very character of Jesus, whom you are from the inside. You're revealing who you really are. And that's exactly what brings joy in us. Because do you know that brain scientists discovered that the images of our identity center is two faces looking at each other? That's 
That's freaky. You discover yourself when you, when you come face to face with God and see what he sees in you. And the reality is he sees Jesus in you. Whether you believe it or not, he sees Jesus in you. He already deposited that in you. You might be on empty in your relationships. But if you behave the way that you see yourself, your fuel of joy will come out to the surface. The fuel of your joy will come out to the surface. Are you able to genuinely say that you're glad to be with other people? Not because of what they bring to you, but what you could bring to them. It doesn't mean that we never confront anybody about anything. I remember dad read a book once and, and I think uh, yeah, sometimes he didn't want him to read books because he tried to practice it and it was about discipline. And, and in Egypt, you know, we believe in corporal punishment and nothing wrong with us, we're fine. And uh, my dad used to smack us. So when he read that book, he decided a different strategy for spanking us. He would get me into the room if I've done something, and I, and, and I gave him lots of opportunities. Uh, he'll get me into the room and get this long, God-forsaken wooden ruler, uh, Egyptian-style wood. If you think uh, Egypt is really good about cotton, you haven't seen their wood, they've got good wood, and breaks your bones. And he'll get me in a room, he'll close the door, and he'll spat the thing out of me. I'll be like, I'm absolutely aching. And then he gives me a hug. So we want to pray together. Really? And, and, and at the end of the day, I don't really want to spank you. The only reason I spank you because I love you deeply. I love you intensely. I hoped he didn't love me that much. <laughs> Are we glad to be with people? You know, I, I, I'm guilty, you know, when my kids drive me nuts, I send them to their room. So you go to your room until you feel better and then come down. Well, how is joy going to return if joy only returns when we're together? Your nervous system can only experience joy when somebody's genuinely glad to be with you. And I'm glad my kids are not here because I'm going to send them off as well. No, no. The reality is sometimes we're so mad that we let people feel that we're not glad to be with them. It might be, you know that it's nonverbal. It's your facial expression. If it's, hi, I'm glad to see you. And, and, and let your face know about it. Like, like, really, you're glad to see me? Oh, yeah, glad to see you. Huh? I'm really glad to see you. No, 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 that's not glad to see me because I read your face more than I read your word because my right side of the brain functions six cycles a second. My left brain that hears you functions only five cycles a second. So your facial expression makes a difference. Your tone of voice makes a difference. The way you touch when appropriate makes a difference because a child knows they're loved and glad to be around when they get touched. Friends, if we show people our true identity, it changes people around us. You know, there's people in my organization, in the educational organization, that I, that I was gladly lumped with them. I knew that I couldn't preach at them which that was my task in life, just preach at people. Whether they like it or not, I just preach at it. And whether they get anything out of it or not, well, I'm happy, I'll preach at it. That was 
my joy. But then I realized in that secular environment, I couldn't preach at it. I had to love them. And I made a decision to go around to each single one of them and spend a half a day to a day with them whilst they're teaching and look after them and speak with them. I used to, in the morning, whilst I'm feeling sick, I would say to Jesus, can you give me three or four questions that I can ask? Because I didn't even have an understanding what I can ask people, strangers. Like, what do you say? In a high, okay, well, after a high, what do you say? High again, you know, how you doing? And, and how are you doing again? Like, what do you do? And Susie would run me through some questions like an idiot. But I would go there and just before I walked into their area, I would read those questions and practice them. And I, like a robot, I would just say it. And slowly, slowly, I built a relationship with them. I didn't tell them too much about Jesus. But I knew that my only task was to reveal to them Jesus in my weakness, in my flawed abilities. My job was not to accomplish a task because that wasn't going to bring much joy. I didn't really care that much about what we're trying to achieve. But I cared about them. And I was, as I was leaving, I was so worried that I didn't really share enough with them about Jesus. Because obviously for many years I was with them, I couldn't really preach at them. They knew I was a God lover. And I was really worried. But then one lady sent me a, a card after I left. And this is what she says. That lady, by the way, came to church. She didn't declare herself to be Christian, but came to our church just to reconnect again several times. And last year she passed away after speaking with me a week earlier. And that's what she said, part of it. Very selfishly, I will miss you enormously. When you came to the organization, my passion was at an all-time low. Your positivity turned not just me around, but the whole mood and ambience of our organization. You made us a team and a family. That's non-Christian, secular people. You brought us together in so many ways. Thank you so much for making me a better educator and I like to think a better person. Not because I was a good manager, I was hopeless. Not because I was a great educator, I didn't even like what they were teaching. But I loved them and I spent the year, year after year, trying to show them what it's like to act like who I really am, a little Jesus in the world. What is it like to be on the other side of me? Let's stand up to pray.